Well, welcome once again to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are happy to welcome back to the show Leslie Corbley, who is a Young Voices contributor, as well as, uh, Leslie, give me your official title for Libertas Institute. Uh, what is it that you do again? Yes, I'm the Privacy Policy Analyst. And she's really good at what she does. And I'm so glad to have you on the on the program today. Um, I see that we're going to be talking about uh, DNA, and in particular, DNA privacy. And... I know this is an issue. Uh, I've done the whole 23andMe thing, as have other family members. And people have asked, well, are you sure you want to give your DNA out? Because apparently there are some risks. Help me understand, what are the, the primary concerns? When you, when you take a DNA test, what are you risking in terms of privacy regarding your DNA? So there are several issues. Uh, the first is um, that you really don't know the long-term risks. That's probably the biggest one. So right now, one of the uh, major um risks people are assessing is the extent to which law enforcement can access consumer databases. So different companies have different privacy policies that are either more or less uh, lax on how they handle law enforcement requests for running searches of databases. Uh, so the recent Idaho murder is an example of a law enforcement running a search from DNA found at the crime scene against a database. Although in this example with, with Idaho, the Idaho murderer and others, they were able to try trace um, the DNA through a familial search. So it wasn't like they were searching the database for an exact match um, with the uh, suspect. So they were able to, to track the suspect through, again, family members uploading their DNA. So that presents one problem, which is that you don't have to necessarily be the one to upload your DNA uh, for there to be implications in the future uh, as it relates to you know being able to be identified through your DNA or through those databases. And then there's other problems, though, that are, I think, a little less clear and potentially more hypothetical, but still within the realm, certainly within the realm of possibility. So your DNA can't only be searched for law enforcement investigative purposes. That's pretty common when we hear about right now or mm -hmm. serial killers, really heinous crimes. I think most people are pretty thrilled when the, when, when the true criminal is brought to justice. But DNA has a lot of information that is not necessarily just related to whether you committed a violent felony. So that could be things like uh, your genetic predispositions are also <laughs> contained in your DNA and other um, aspects of your identity that could be very relevant to things such as mitigating risk in a medical context um, and other other contexts that aren't quite as um, dramatic or life altering as, you know, being accused of a, a heinous violent crime. I have to admit, after I saw the movie Gattaca, I suddenly had a whole new ho. Oh. <laughs> if you know, it's 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 science fiction, but it's like it's like you say, um, predispositions could be looked at, and and there's potential that uh, some people in power could use those those genetic results in in not necessarily good ways. Absolutely. And I think it's important, again, to remember that the, you're talking about the long term here, right? When you kind of extract this powerful data and these databases being built out and then you uh, extract that over time, right? Um, so it's not as if that's something that's on the radar right now, but as these databases continue to be built out, um, I mean, it's not something that's outside the realm of possibility. Um, it certainly is something that would have a profound, I could certainly see an argument that it would have possibly profound um, mitigation of costs as it relates to, again, primarily in the health context, but uh, other contexts as well. So 
it's, it's not as if there are not other applications of this data. And I think that's what's important for consumers to understand is when you're when you um, upload your DNA to these databases, you really don't know what applications it could be used for in the future. I mean, there's simply no way to um, predict that because you don't have yeah. the crystal ball that tells you how the technology will develop, how quickly it will develop, or what will happen in 10, 15, or even years after your death, right, well, um, can, with these databases. I could see life insurance companies, you know, leaning heavily on this. Well, it looks like you have a history of diabetes in your, you know, genetic, genetic makeup. So here's the question I have for you. What are the what are the corporate responsibilities for these companies like Twenty Three and Me? Um, I mean, either legally or ethically, what to, what's it look like from their vantage point? Um, right now, I would say, at least as it relates to their privacy policies, they they focus heavily on the law enforcement piece of the puzzle. That's sort of what's. Um, really, I think, front of mind for most people who are in the sphere right now, because it's actually happening, right? Um, law enforcement can't access these databases, run searches, the extent to which there could be an error rate could have profound impact on, you know, the rights of the accused, things of that sort. And of course, the fact that when consumers initially uploaded this DNA, they weren't thinking about a possible law enforcement application. So I think, um, you know, companies like 23andMe or Ancestry or any other company in the sphere is thinking about what was it that their consumers uh, were anticipating when they were contracting with them and uh, wanting to protect uh, that aspect of their privacy. So most of the policies focus heavily on law enforcement application, although they do also you know, relate to how they handle your data as it relates to third parties, broadly speaking. So that um, could implicate, you know, whether or not another government agency or a private, you know, insurance company at that point would be a private party wanting to access uh, data. So there's right now pretty tight restrictions on this. But again, corporate policy is subject to change. And the vast majority of these rules right now are governed simply by corporate policy. Um, and it's a, it's a tough space to figure out how to fully regulate because top-down approaches from government aren't necessarily the answer. And of course, we'll almost for sure, carve out government actors as oh, it yeah. relates to the regulatory yeah. yeah, landscape. So it's not really a fully simple problem to solve. But right now, it is largely governed by just the privacy policies of each corporation, which is on, available publicly on their website. Um, again, I think from a risk assessment standpoint on the consumer side, it's a matter of not only do you trust that this corporate entity will maintain the kind of policies they currently have into the future, um, but also you know, what is technology going to allow for, uh, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years in the future? I really appreciate what you just mentioned, too, because that was one of the questions I had was, what's the responsibility on, on me as a, as a consumer? I told you just before we went on the air, um, I had some misgivings about uh, doing a DNA test, but my son gave me one three years ago because he knew I was adopted. And he says, I don't know, maybe we can find out who your birth parents are. Sure enough, I had connected with uh, my birth parents uh, uh, back in 2020. And it was a really positive thing. Now, in the back of my mind, too, I'm thinking, I feel like I'm taking a risk, you know, in giving my DNA to a company. Um, but I, for me, it's probably worth it for the doors that opened, um, as opposed to the risk that some third party is going to take that information and, and use it in a way that isn't in my best interest. I think you've really touched on the one of the one of the issues with um, technology and privacy that is goes far beyond DNA, which is that there are so many positive outcomes uh, from a lot of the technological advancement we've seen. So it's not as if uh, you know these technologies only bring 
risks. <laughs> they do bring benefits, right. which is why people use them. Um, so that's, I think, something that people need to understand is that uh, there are risks and benefits to each uh, calculation and how you decide um, to behave going forward is something that needs to be contemplated on the front end. And then, of course, as it relates to databases like uh, DNA, I think we need to be really cognizant of the fact that at a certain point, um, it's almost like a, a pooling, a comment uh, type scenario where once enough people have uploaded their information, whether or not I have, doesn't mean I am any less easy to track in a way. Um, so there are certain things that can be assessed or certainly assessed with a certain degree of accuracy. There's never 100% accuracy with really any method, but um, that can be assessed without really the individual's input at all uh, once it comes to these, these specific type of databases. So I think that that's something consumers do need to be aware of, right? And I'm sure some people will make, will make them fall more on the apathetic realm of kind of what's the point? <laughs> you know, if enough other people engage in this risky behavior, uh, it kind of falls on me anyway, but that I think should be a wake-up call to us as not only consumers, but just individuals moving forward in the future as to what we want the future to look like and how what guardrails we want to be in place as it relates to the accessing and utilization of this type of data. Okay. One final question, and this is just, I, I'm trying to remember the Innocence Project. Is, is this not a project where they rely on DNA or they use DNA information to help exonerate people who've been wrongfully imprisoned? Am I remembering that correctly? That is true. And that is another, again, good and prof profoundly good application of this type of um, technology is that it has exonerated many individuals. So while there's concerns about wanting to make sure that there's accuracy on the front end, right, when you run that initial um, DNA uh, tests or DNA like comparison, you want to make sure you're getting the right suspect. Um, there is also uh, the the good thing that comes with with DNA testing, which is that it can exonerate individuals who are falsely accused. So again, there's it's it's not really a, a good bad dichotomy as much as wanting to understand currently how this these DNA um, databases can be used, and then the, of course the profound potential in the future for um, applications that are both positive and also negative, and wanting to to look at uh, the landscape and trying to trying to assess how do we how do we move how do we moving forward um, figure out a way to ensure that there are guardrails against abuse uh, without um, abandoning the positive benefits of this type of tech all right thank you so much again we're talking with Leslie Corbley she is a primary uh, privacy at policy analyst at Libertas Institute as well as a young voices uh, contributor where can people find you on social media um, sure right now I'm on uh Gosh, LinkedIn, please follow my LinkedIn page. More than welcome to do that. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Zachary Yost to the program. This is Zach's first time joining us on Moving Forward. And Zach, I'm going to ask you, just take a moment. And if you would, please tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Great. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I'm a freelance writer and researcher um, who works a lot on foreign policy. I used to work in D.C. I'm also the co-host of the War, Economy and State podcast with Ryan McMakin at the Mises Institute, which is focused on foreign policy as well. Very good. 
Well, it sounds like you're hanging with the right people. And and I'm looking at an article of yours, Taiwan is not Ukraine. And uh, I, I got to admit, when, when it comes to foreign policy, I have to take ulcer medication before I really start reading about some of the <laughs> some of the ways that the U.S. is involved in, in various uh, foreign policy aspects, because there's a lot that makes me nervous. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, clearly there's been, there's been a great deal of help, uh, aid being offered through the U.S. to Ukraine as a result of the, of the Russian invasion. Where do we stand on Taiwan? It sounds like some promises have been made there, and and sometimes uh, the the two are conflated as well. You know, if we're standing with Ukraine, well, of course we're gonna, you know, do the same for for Taiwan. Right. Yes. Um, the blob is the foreign policy establishment, is also known, <laughs> has really ramped up the rhetoric since the war began, tying the fate of Taiwan to the fate of Ukraine. Uh, they say if if Russia wins in Ukraine or oh, it's open season on Taiwan, China will invade next week. And, you know, there goes democracy. It's sort of d- domino theory from the Cold War. And um, really, the two situations are completely different on almost every level. Uh, on the tactical level, uh, they could not be further apart. Taiwan is an island a heavily defensible island with uh, basically a 90-mile-wide moat. It's only really feasible to launch a large amphibious invasion basically eight weeks in two separate periods during the year, whereas in Ukraine, when the invasion began, Russia invaded on multiple fronts all at once. Uh, But there's also a crucial difference in what would be understood as our national interest in each situation. Uh, Whereas Russia is a declining great power, it still is a great power, has the world's largest nuclear arsenal, but it is not really a threat to us. China, on the other hand, I'm not really a China hawk. I don't think China is a, a looming threat we need to lose sleep over, but they have the potential to cause trouble down the road. And I think it is in our interest for Taiwan to remain de facto independent. However, I would argue that doesn't mean we need to defend Taiwan ourselves, which would be exceedingly costly. And just this month, the Center for Strategic and International Studies released a very large, like 140-page study of wargaming scenarios they ran of how the United States would fare defending Taiwan. And in general, in uh, they ran various iterations, changing variables and things, but in general, in the realistic scenarios, the US, quote, won, although that victory in every scenario entailed losing two aircraft carriers, hundreds of uh, uh, planes on the ground, uh, thousands of people would die. I mean, an aircraft carrier has 5,000 people on it. So it would not be a simple task (laughs) to defend Taiwan. And I argue um, in a white paper I had published last year called Victory Without Battle, that the United States can achieve the goal that I would argue is in its national, national interest of keeping Taiwan de facto independent without having to do the fighting ourselves. And we can do that by selling the proper weapon systems and arms to Taiwan to deter a Chinese invasion, because an invasion of Taiwan would be one of the most complicated logistical feats in human history. It is not a walk in the park. And unfortunately, I mean, I have no ill will towards the people of Ukraine. What's happening there is tragic and horrible and unjust. But uh, 
in the end, the status of Taiwan is of much more importance to us regarding U.S. national interests and national security than the status of Ukraine. And all of the aid we're shipping to Ukraine has costs. And unfortunately, a lot of policymakers uh, seem to have just forgotten of the idea of scarcity. The 2022 national security strategy says in the introduction that, quote, there is nothing beyond our capacity. Yet we can see here that's not true because we're depleting our stockpiles of weapons. Uh, CSIS also just released a report stating that it's going to take years and years, even at ramped up production capacity to replace all the weapons we're shipping to Ukraine, which means if we need to sell a lot of weapons to Taiwan, they're not going to be there. In fact, we've already agreed to sell them billions of dollars of weapons. There's a $19 billion backlog in Taiwanese weapon orders right now. Well, is that because so much has been sent to Ukraine instead? It is not entirely because of that. I mean, there's just a backlog to begin with. Um, but part some of the things they're waiting on, we could just sell them from our stockpiles. But we've literally sent a third of our stockpile of um, anti-tank missiles to Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine. We literally, the stockpile, basically, if we get rid of any more, we would not be able to fulfill various contingency operations that the U.S. has. So all like we have also sent a million artillery shells to Ukraine. Wow. And uh, at current rates of production, it is not possible to restock our stockpile of shells because the U.S. military uses about 100,000 every year in just training exercises. And uh, this report that I mentioned, Wargaming Out of Scenario, it, uh, it estimates that within three months of the start of, an, of a war between Taiwan and China, Taiwan would run out of artillery shells. So it's sort of like we're really depleting our stockpiles and it's going to take a long time to replenish them. And also it's not like it's free to replenish them. There's an opportunity cost. If a factory is making artillery shells, they're not making widgets or, you know, whatever else it could be making. No, that makes sense. Now, uh, talk to me about uh, the implications as far as China is a nuclear power, nowhere near as big an arsenal as as Russia. But uh, is is this, uh, in, in a sense, playing a nuclear game of chicken with China if the U.S. Uh, steps in, you know, and directly starts to, to intervene in the case of, of Taiwan? Yeah, it definitely would be. Um, the the war gamers sort of pull a, an economist move, uh, you know, assuming a can opener, and they say, you know, in this scenario, nuclear weapons won't be used. And the thought basically is that we could contain the the war to just, you know, Taiwan with conventional means. In a lot of the scenarios, uh, the United States did not strike targets in mainland China, things like that. So were we to become involved in this conflict, it would be very dangerous. Uh, it would be uh, it's even more dangerous than the situation in Ukraine right now. And uh, which is why I would argue the best approach is to sell weapons to Taiwan. They're a wealthy country. They can afford it. Make it clear to them that 
we're not going to allow them to free ride off of us. We're not going to swoop in and save them, which polling indicates a majority of the Taiwanese people think will happen. And, uh, you know, give them the tools they need to make sure uh, China doesn't attempt an invasion, because were it to happen, the consequences could be catastrophic, unlike anything anyone alive today has lived through, really. Well, I I appreciate that your approach is much more than just this gung ho. Well, I'll just you know charge. Well, Leroy Jenkins are are waiting yeah. there and, and help him <laughs> yes. out. Um, this this sounds much more measured, and hopefully uh, hopefully there are cooler heads, you know, in uh, in the U.S. government that that are considering options like this. Again, we're talking with Zachary Yost. Uh, Zach, what uh, what's the best way for people who want to follow you uh, on social media or access your writings? Where can they find you? Uh, yeah, people can follow me on Twitter. It's just at Zachary Yost. And they can also subscribe to uh, War Economy and State uh, wherever podcasts are hosted. Something tells me that as uh, as the whole geopolitical situation continues to unfold, that I'm going to be reading a lot more of your articles because I, I want to see what's going on. And I appreciate your take on it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome Elizabeth Grace Matthew to the program. Elizabeth, I think this is your first time on the show. Would you tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do? It is my first time, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm a freelance writer and editor based in Philadelphia. I I come from a background in the academy. Um, I studied 19th century literature, particularly women's literature, and um, also higher education. And I was a, a professor of writing for a number of years across several universities before I turned to writing and editing full time. Well, I, you know, I love literature. I grew up reading, and uh, even even though computers pretty much dominate my day, I still love the feel of a good book in my hands. But I have to admit, I'm I'm a little bit stymied at uh, the idea that uh, some people seem to be kind of rewriting. Um, history or rewriting the authors. Uh, for instance, I'm looking at your article in The Hill. Uh, no, Louisa May Alcott was not a man. She was a woman ahead of her time. I didn't realize that uh, she was among the historical figures kind of being recast in a, in a more inclusive role. Tell me, tell me about the issue here. Yes. So Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women in um, 1868, was when it was published. Um, and it was a book about, for those who haven't read it, about four girls um, coming up in New England during the time of the Civil War. And it's loosely based on her own life. She's the second of the four uh, sisters mentioned in the story. And she was what we used to call a tomboy. Both she and her autobiographical uh, alter ego in the, the novel, Joe March, were tomboys and wished to be men. And Louisa had that feeling, as did her um, alter ego in the novel. And you can find that in her papers and as well as throughout the book. And so in some ways, she made it easy for folks that want to rewrite her um, into having wanted to be a man. However, this is really taken out of context and anachronistic because, of course, the things that she wants to do, such as earn money to support her family and fight in the war and be respected for her mind, not just her appearance, these are all things that she was arguing women should be able to do. And 
if one was living in 18, you know, 68 and, and wanted to do those things, it would be natural, perhaps, to wish that one had the status of a man. It's not that she thought she was a man. But I think sometimes that we read literature through a very presentist lens nowadays, and that can mislead um, an interpretation of, of the author and what they actually intended. Yeah, it's hard to remember, I think, sometimes that during that period of time, in fact, up until the early 20th century, women did not have the right to vote. Something, you know, corrected by, what was it, the 19th Amendment? Yes, yes, exactly. And um, Louisa May Alcott actually cast the first vote um, in her town of, as a woman um, before women actually had the right to vote. It was sort of a, an early protest where they were voting, though the votes wouldn't be counted. And so she was an advocate for those sorts of women's rights. But one of the things that distinguished her from someone like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and where I actually think, and Susan B. Anthony, the early um, suffragettes, the early feminist movement, I think that where a lot of this presentism might come from and, and the anachronism and the difficulty of reading her is that they believed, many of those early sort of what we might now call proto-feminists, that it was women's goodness and their innate morality that was why women should vote and why women should be citizens. And Alcott really did not believe that. She really thought that women were the equals of men, not just in good points, but also in bad ones. She really thought that women were capable of both virtue and vice on the same level as men. And that also is part of why I think she gets misread, because it's hard to pigeonhole her into a feminist movement that often thought of women as um, sort of more virtuous or more naturally moral, which is really a way, in a sense, of making them less naturally um, ambitious or less naturally hard to uh, sort of conquer themselves in a way that makes them uh, virtuous citizens. Okay, Elizabeth, forgive me, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do a comparison and and just ask you, uh, Calamity Jane, a very prominent figure in the American West, very much so because she was like the ultimate tomboy. She was the woman who could do anything a guy could do. In fact, uh, some guys really, uh, they didn't realize she was a woman upon first encountering her as, as the American West was being tamed. In that vein, is she kind of a kindred spirit with Louisa May Alcott uh, in, in that sense that uh, it's not about uh, feminism so much as I'm as good as you are, I can do whatever you can do? Yeah, I think I think that's definitely right. And I think um, part of what Louisa May Alcott was, was dealing with was that many of the things she had to do were in fact the more staid East Coast domestic things. She would probably have loved to be out on the frontier doing exactly what Calamity Jane was doing. But instead she had to do the things that a young lady on the East Coast had to do, keep house and attend coming out parties. And these sorts of things were not to her liking. She wanted to be running and shooting. She wanted to be on the front in the Civil War, not staying home and knitting bandages. And, um, because of that, one of the things that she really lighted upon was the idea that doing what you don't want to do and learning to do it well and to accept that burden is something that women have to do just as much as men. And that's part of why she actually weaves John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, which was a very common educational text in her time, published in 1689, I believe, 
And it's an allegory about a man who actually leaves his wife and children behind to go seek salvation because he needs to overcome all these obstacles. Well, Alcott rewrote it and she made the obstacles, well, rewrote it by weaving it through the early chapters of Little Women. And the obstacles were things like wanting to clean when you didn't have to and going to a party where girls were doing things you weren't allowed to do and being upset you couldn't, um, didn't have the money to do the same things they were doing. And so she really made virtue something that would exist in, in women's East Coast sort of normative domestic world, as well as in the frontier and war fronts that men conquered. I like how you point out in your article that uh, Louisa May Alcott provided heroines to posterity because she was a woman ahead of her time. And I find myself wondering, I'm not the only one thinking this today, where where are the heroes, you know, for, for our time? Can you think of any contemporaries of our, our time that uh, that might favorably compare with Louisa May Alcott in terms of being willing to break that mode without without it being just a purely ideological quest? That's a great question, and I'm sure there are many. Um, I am not aware of anyone that I could point to in exactly that mold literarily right now. But one thing I, I will mention is that the American Girl um, stories are really very much in the Little Women mold, at least the ones that were published when I was a child in the 90s, um, really have girls that are growing up in a context where their femaleness does mean something, because of course these are historical stories. And so they're not gonna be doing the exact same things necessarily that their brothers are doing, but they are going to do things with the same level of tenacity and perseverance and reason and strength that their brothers are using and employing. And so I think that those books are also really great examples in the sort of little women vein. All right, we've got about two minutes left. Um, for for people who haven't discovered what uh, what literature, and I'm I'm talking older literature, nineteenth uh, century literature, for instance, has to offer. I want to ask you if you could you please make the case why is it a good idea to read old books to get into the minds of of people who came before us. That's such a great question, Brian. Thank you. Um, it's hard for me to imagine not doing that because I was, of course, that sort of geek that just read lots of books as a child. But um, one thing I'll say is that it really helps to avoid the presentism that can be so enveloping in our time where we have so much media and we have so many outlets, but we don't necessarily have a way to situate ourselves in history and recognize that some of the debates we're having have antecedents that we can't necessarily see. And also that many of them are smaller than we think they are when you situate them on a more vast um, tableau where you can really see where they come from and where perhaps they're going. And so the historical mindset that really helps to understand what people would have interpreted um, someone who is, you know, a girl who likes to run and, and play sports as in 1867 versus today is really helpful to have if you want to be both accurate and um, useful as a citizen today. Thank you so much. I, you know, this is something I've been trying to convince my kids that uh, really it's okay to pick up old books as opposed to just simply, you know, scrolling through on a screen to see whatever the, the latest trend is. But um, man, 
given given the choice between the two, I know which one seems to, to give me something that's of lasting value. Elizabeth Grace Matthew, thank you so much for being our guest today. For people who want to follow you, either on social media or follow your writings, where can they find you? Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Um, I'm on Twitter at Elizabeth G. Matt. And I'm also um, on Instagram and on LinkedIn as well. Thank you so much. I hope we talk again soon. Thank you so much, Brian. Me too. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm happy to welcome Jared Crawford to the program. Jared, this is your first time on Moving Forward with Young Voices. So if you would do us the honor, talk to us about who you are and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on, Brian. Uh, so currently, I guess my, in my official capacity, I am a senior account executive at RunSwitch Public Relations. We're based out of Louisville, Kentucky. We are the state's largest PR firm. Uh, and so I do a little bit of everything in my day to day, but uh, I came from the policy world. So policy and politics is still very much my passion. Uh, still do a lot and work and write and do podcasts around that. Um, I'm a part of the Flyover Country podcast here in Louisville and then have in the past hosted my own uh, podcast around policy issues and again, uh, you know, anything that's sort of relevant to Kentucky. We always talk about communicating ideas and celebrating Kentucky. And so that's kind of everything that I do uh, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, excited to be on the the Moving Forward show for the first time. People may have heard my brother, Josh Crawford, in, in different capacities with Young Voices things. I am not Josh. We do different stuff. You'll probably hear us talk about different things, but um no, excited to be here today. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have you as well. And actually, I, I'm looking forward to the topic that we're going to delve into here. The headline says, Kentucky governor accused of violating Open Records Act on COVID school closures. And I know there has been a lot of questions that have been raised all across the country over why schools were closed as long as they were, who was keeping them closed and so forth. Can you set the stage for me? What was the situation in Kentucky when it came to closing the schools? And, and frankly, how, how long did it take? And was it a uphill battle to get them reopened. Yeah, so super quick background. One of the things people don't know about Kentucky currently is despite being a very red state, you hear this all the time about Kentucky, it was the first state called for President Trump in 2016. Deep red state, uh, 80 out of 100 House members are Republicans, 30 out of 39 senators are uh, Republicans, but we have a Democrat governor. And so during the COVID years with the I mean, rapid expansion, but really misuse and abuse of emergency powers. Um, A lot of these governors really through just sort of the stroke of a pen were able to shut down schools, restaurants, gyms, bars, your dentists, you know, you name it. Right. And so here in Kentucky, we like many other, uh, frankly, blue states uh, saw a pretty expansive shutdown multiple times of our schools. Of course, we're now seeing the effects of that in learning loss. Uh, students who are, you know, academically but emotionally and and socially sort of stunted in their growth. And so, the Republican Party of, of Kentucky, I have to give a shout out to my good friend Sean Southard, who's the spokesperson over there, filed an open records request with the governor, uh, requesting communications. You know, over the last couple of years between uh, his team and 
teachers and some of the teachers unions, uh, members of the the school boards and such around, you know, closures and uh, what we call here NTI or non-traditional instruction days. Um, the governor's team deemed that too broad or we see this. Anybody's filed the open records request. You've probably been told it's either too broad or it would take too much time or they don't have it or whatever. Um, uh, Sean and the Republican Party of Kentucky narrowed that search slightly and the governor still said they couldn't do it and so they appealed to the uh, attorney general here daniel cameron who has ruled that the governor violated that open records law uh so now things are a little bit of a standstill uh the governor can kind of you know appeal this and and potentially face a lawsuit or you know go into essentially just go into emails hit control f and search these words that's really all we're asking for all the parties asking for uh, is a little bit of transparency on why they close these schools down. If it truly was the science, as they say, they should have evidence of that. If there was no collusion, if there was no wrongdoing, they should be able to easily prove that. Uh, and I think parents deserve to see that. Yeah, I have to say, you know, it, it, when when someone stonewalls like that, it does make you wonder, okay, what are what's being hidden here? Or why is that something that you're reluctant to share? If they were confident that this was the right call. And again, like you say, if the science was on their side or they could show there was justification for doing this, um, are they worried that there will be accountability? I mean, are there, I guess we're going to have to speculate a little bit, but why, why might they not want this information being made public? Yeah. Again, I, I don't want to speculate or, or put wrongdoing on anybody that hasn't been proved to have any wrongdoing. Right. But one of the interesting things about this situation is that Really, on the national level and in some other states, we know that there was essentially kind of collusion between uh, either, you know, uh, governors or officials within certain cabinets and these teachers unions who, from what we can tell, weren't acting in the best interests of students or in the best interests of, again, the science or what was, you know, the the safest or the, the healthiest decisions. Uh, We know that this happened within the Biden administration. We have pretty clear records of that. Uh, And so I think people assume or or a right to assume that this could have easily happened, uh, you know, within states or within localities, uh, you know, in in our cities or or wherever. And you really don't know unless you can prove you didn't. Right. And so I think there's a a little bit of an assumption that there was some some wrongdoing, or, or we sort of know that there was some wrongdoing in other states and on the national level. The possibility that that happened in other states, I think, is is either likely um, uh, or, or at the very least, you know, we need to see some records uh, that it didn't. And so that's kind of where we're at. Right. That there's a there's a suspicion here that there was some wrongdoing. We've been you know, the the. The governor has been asked to kind of prove that there wasn't and is hesitant. And so, again, the, the suspicion here is building. Well, and, and I guess it follows to ask to what end, if there was wrongdoing, is this just a, you know, is it a witch hunt? We just want somebody to, to take the fall or is it a matter of, look, we need to, to see where the mistakes were made to make sure that we don't make the same kind of mistakes again, you know, in, in the heat of, uh, you know, panic. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. You know, I'll also add to. Kentucky is Kentucky is one of these weird states that does its governor's elections in, in off years. So we don't even get a rest. Everybody get, got through 2022 and we get another election cycle. <laughs> you know, Kentucky is one of the only uh, states. Every other state that Kentucky touches offers a private school choice program. 
or has charter schools. Kentucky has a charter school law, but no operating charter schools and not a single private school choice program. So something like an ESA or some sort of scholarship tax credit program. And I think the bigger story here is having a governor that is pro-student versus a governor that is you know, pro-teachers union or pro-system. And so in the end here, we may see that the governor either did or didn't collude or did or didn't do some sort of wrongdoing. But I think what it speaks to is that their communications were first sort of, you know, to the teachers unions or to the system or to the sort of friends and not in, it, towards the students and not towards the families and not towards yeah. the people in the system who, who matter the most. And so, again, they're, they're, you know, nobody's probably going to go to jail over this, right? I mean, that's, that's probably not what, what the outcome will be. But I do think with an election on the horizon, excuse me, with an election on the horizon, with a state that is in desperate need of embracing uh, education reform in, in, in general, and especially school choice, that this, this could send a message to, uh, to voters uh, about, you know, what they want in their in leadership next. Yeah, and and I appreciate that you brought up the school choice issue. This is something I'm seeing this play out in a number of states, including my home state of Idaho. Uh, it's, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a great idea, actually. That I believe competition actually raises everybody's performance level to to a higher level. But we're seeing very similar responses to what you described. Is you know the there there is a, there's a system there that does not want competition, and so in in the sense that this system may be trying to protect itself or uh, it thrives when there's there's a little less transparency than than parents and students need um, that's concerning and hopefully you know this sets the stage for some some needed changes to take place so is is your gubernatorial race is it this year yes yeah so uh, up in may we'll have uh, we have 12 candidates running for the GOP primary wow. there's a couple of others on the Democrat side, but but seemingly uh, Governor Bashir will will make it out of that. Um, but yeah, twelve candidates on on the GOP side again. A lot of them pro school choice, which is great. I'll, I'll mention quickly. It is National School Choice Week, uh, so across the country, people celebrating. Uh, but yes, yeah. So this year we will uh, we will elect a new governor. One of those weird states that decided to do it uh, in off years. We'll do all constitutional offices. So governor, attorney general, secretary of state, auditor, treasurer. And commissioner of agriculture. Wow. Well, you guys, uh, you guys enjoy the election season while the rest of us are taking a little bit of a break and and yeah, regrouping. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I'll try my best. All right. Again, we are talking with Jared Crawford. He is a Young Voices contributor. Jared, uh, for people who want to follow you either on social media or just to, to follow your writings, what's the best way for them to to look after you? Yeah. So if you want to follow uh, my Twitter profile, which Dare I say I don't recommend only because I just don't tweet that much. Um, but at Jared, J-A-R-E-D underscore Craw 45. Um, but if you want to see some of the things I'm, I'm involved in, I would fall at uh, Pegasus Kentucky or at the Flyover Pod. Those are the two places where I'm producing the most content most of the time.